let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we have just sung of the desperation and desperate state we are in sin, that we walked and lived and ran a life of rebellion, that we spurned your love, your goodness, and Father, that we went after all things in our own way. But then, Father, you gave us Christ who stood in our place, who bore the wrath that we deserved so that now we can sing all we know is grace. And so, Father, we have sung that all we have is Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our sure and steady anchor. He is that which guides us and directs us into the glories of your redemption. So, Father, as we have sung, Lord, that as we stand before you, all we have is Christ. Lord, we must quickly confess that there are other things in this world that cling to us, that distract us, that pull us away from Christ. Father, we ask today that you would, by your spirit and the ministry of your word today, draw our eyes back to Christ. That we would recognize that we would suffer the loss of everything, including our goodness and our righteousness, Father, that we would count it as dung so that we can have the excellency of knowing your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, grow our hearts today in the knowledge of Christ, that we would not just know about Him, but that we would know Him, that we would grow deeper in our love for Christ today, and that Your Word would expose the areas of our hearts, the places where we seek to keep Christ at bay. Father, may there be no boundary on the grace given to us in Christ that it may overflow into every area of our lives today. Father, we're dependent upon your spirit working through your word. And so we ask, Lord, today that you would take your word, bind it to our hearts, transform us more into the image of your beloved son. May we leave this place different than when we first came in. We pray this all in the name of Christ our Savior, pleading His blood, which is all that we have. We pray this in His name. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we are continuing to look at good news for pilgrims. Again, Peter's book is written to strangers and to exiles, to foreigners, to those who do not belong in this world. And Peter has specifically called us to some very difficult things, particularly as we talked about several weeks ago, the call to submission in many different aspects of lives. It's difficult, all right? Nobody, nobody wants to submit. 
Um, and I, I feel like that really, really struck a chord with people because I've heard other people talking about submit, submit. I had you guys repeating that all the time, and it seems to be coming up. And so I'm thankful for God's grace at work there. But it's not a call just to laboriously deal with what we've been called to do as believers, but rather Peter, as he comes to the end of chapter 2, encourages us with good news that we're going to suffer, we're going to deal with many different things, but throughout all that, there is good news for us as pilgrims to focus on. And last week, we looked at the heart of the gospel that is good news for pilgrims, and that is the satisfaction of justice is good news for pilgrims. We saw in verse 23, so look with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. We'll read through it and then we'll come back. He says in verse 23, When he, Christ, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so we spent some time last week focusing on verse 23 and the first part of verse 24, that the satisfaction of justice is good news for pilgrims, that as Christ entrusted himself to a God who judges justly, we are called to do the same. But we quickly notice that this justice is also a two-edged sword. For if we were to receive justice, what would we deserve? God's eternal wrath. But praise God, there is good news given to us in the news of a just judge, that this just judge will not allow injustice to proceed, including justice that we deserve, but instead of that justice being expended upon us, it was expended upon Christ as he suffered on the tree. The tree of cursing that came. For the scriptures tell us, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this curse that he endured was given so that he could be substituted for us. He himself bore whose sins? Our sins and his body on the tree. And so this is the heart of the gospel. This is good news that we who are condemned in our sins, who deserve death as a result of our rebellion against God, can stand fully in Christ's righteousness before the Father. That we are accepted in the Beloved. And that we are free from God's wrath. This is good news. But Peter does not leave us there. The work of redemption is not merely a salvation from God's wrath. It is also a transformative act that sets us on a new trajectory in our lives. And this also is good news for pilgrims. And we see Peter pointing to us both what God is doing in sanctifying us or making us more holy, and then also in how God cares for us as we walk along our path. 
And so again, it is easy for us to be focused on the difficulties and the trials and the circumstances that we're called to walk as pilgrims in this world. But Peter is calling to us to hope in the good news of Christ's redemption as we walk the path of a pilgrim. So we saw the satisfaction of justice as good news. But secondly, we see that the sanctification of the righteous is good news for pilgrims. Notice what he says again in verse 24. We have that great news of the substitution that Christ made in taking the curse upon himself on the tree. But there's, in verse 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. But then there is a connecting word. That is the word that. And the, the way that this is worded in the original, it is a, it is a, um, a, a clause that is showing an effect. And so it could literally be translated in order that. So we know that God has saved us from God's wrath. We know that in Christ we no longer have to fear the judgment that's come upon us. But Peter is saying that there is another result. That, it is, that salvation is not just about getting a ticket out of heaven and, or a ticket into heaven and out of hell, but rather it begins a transformative work in our lives. And so that that is very important here. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might what? Die to sin. We see, first of all, the good news of death to sin. Now, there's an interesting interplay here, particularly as we look at how God works within us and brings about salvation in our hearts. The reality is, is that before we were captivated by sovereign grace, our life was one of living death. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that we were what in our trespasses and sins? Dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, being dead in our trespasses and sins, what did we do? We walked in them. We walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But what we find here is that as Christ has died, taking upon himself our sins in his body on the tree, guess what happens to our sins? We are dead to them and alive to Jesus Christ. There has been a fundamental spiritual change in our status before God. And so we have been crucified with Christ so that we ourselves should be dead to sin. You realize that when we think about the cross and we think about the fact that Christ is suffering there, that he is taking upon himself all the sins of humanity and he is, he is suffering, bleeding and dying and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not just the satisfaction of judgment that is done there. It is also the killing of our sins in Christ. That there are two things happening on the cross. God's wrath is satisfied and now we are dead to sin. This is what Peter is focusing on, that we might die to sin. Now, we can't talk 
about our death to sin and our life in Christ without going to Romans chapter 6. For it's in Romans chapter 6 that Paul really hashes out the details of this particular reality. And, and we're not going to spend the time going through the whole passage uh, because we're preaching in 1 Peter, not in Romans. Maybe sometime we'll get to Romans, sometime, you know, in the next 30 or 40 years. But, um, but in Romans, Paul makes this argument that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. So what should that mean then for us on a practical daily basis? I mean, we can hear these words, we can read what Peter is saying, we can read what Paul is saying, but how should that affect us when we wake up on Monday morning or Tuesday morning? And Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 6, 11. He says, we must consider ourselves, what? Dead to sin. We must think as though we are dead to sin. The ESV translates this consider. I, I actually like the way the KJV translates it, reckon. It's one that's taken from in a, the accounting world to count up or, or to... Uh, calculate. It, it has the idea either of counting or of mathematics. And in a more general sense, it speaks of the operation of our minds. And not just the careless operation of our minds, but the careful operation of our minds. You know, if you were to go to a tax agent, and, you know, thankfully we're past tax season, but guess what? It's coming around again next year. And so you were to go to a tax service or you were to go take your stuff to an accountant that does this tax work for you and and he were to say oh thanks you know i think i got everything here i don't know i'll, I'll probably wing it one hour before the deadline's over how would you feel about someone who was that careless about your taxes would you go back to them again next year you probably would say you know what i'm going to go to somebody else this year because the irs has power <laughs> right we we would can we would think it unthinkable to allow that level of carelessness to exist in our own personal financial lives. Then why do we allow that level of carelessness to exist in our spiritual lives? Paul is telling us to carefully consider, give careful thought towards this fact that we are dead to sin. I think when you wake up on Monday morning, you have an opportunity to think about that truth, to think about what Peter is saying here. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from God's wrath so that you would die to sin. So while we are, we're all, although we were dead in our trespasses and sins, now the Christian life is one of perpetual death to sin. The Puritans used a term called mortification of the flesh. And it means to be constantly killing sin. Are you doing this? Are you carefully considering the reality that you are dead to sin? It needs to begin in our thinking. If we don't carefully account for what Christ's sacrifice has brought about in our lives, then we will very quickly and easily fall into sin. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 12, we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by renewing what? Our minds. 
It's the same concept that Paul is pointing to in Romans chapter 6. We need to be thinking we are dead to sin. So there is good news in that reality. But thinking is useless unless it affects our what? Actions. You know, I can, I can go up here to the top of the hill and come up to that stop sign, and I can think, what am I supposed to do at a stop sign? I can, I can account it very carefully. I am supposed to come to not a rolling stop, right? A complete stop. But unless I actually do that, was my thinking of any use to me? And I can either be in an accident or get a ticket. There are consequences for not acting upon what we know. Thinking is useless unless it affects our actions. The renewed mind that we have that carefully considers our deadness to sin will then not permit us to sin. We are dead to those things, so why would I go back to it? It should stink to us. I remember uh, several years ago, there was a, I saw it on the news, there was a complaint about this guy who lived in a, in a neighborhood and he was somebody that PennDOT would um, contract with to go pick up dead deer on the side of the road. And, you know, if you lived in western Pennsylvania for any amount of time, you're going to see dead deer on the side of the road. And so there are people who go and get them. So he would go and get them, and part of that contract was that he would dispose of them correctly. Well, you know how he disposed of them? He dropped them in his backyard. Now imagine that you live next to that guy. All right? Would that, would that make you very happy? When you got up in the morning and went out to sit on the patio and drink your delicious coffee and there is the stink of death, it would ruin your day, wouldn't it? I mean, I could imagine being the next door neighbor. And the guy wasn't like, it wasn't like down here in Carnegie where everyone's next to each other, thankfully. But still, you could smell it. We avoid the stink of death. We reckon those things that are dead horrible. So we shy away from them, but yet we don't seem to smell the stink of death in sin. And this is what Paul is calling us to do. It's what Peter is calling us to do. Look at what he says in Romans 6.14. Sin no longer has dominion over you because we are not under law, but we are under grace. Sin is not permitted to live within us, he says in Romans 6.12. And in Romans 6.10, he tells us that the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for how long? For all. We are dead to sin. It no longer has dominion over us. I mean, if you think about the reign of a king, right? A king's reign ends... When he what? When he dies. And the reality is that apart from Christ, apart from salvation in his name, we were under the domain of sin. It was our king, and it was who we served. But Jesus killed it on the cross. And so now its reign is what? Over. It has no more dominion on us. So what we need to recognize is the sanctification 
That is good news. It is tied to the cross of Christ. He bore our sin in His body on the tree so that we should be transformed. Peter's contention here excludes the idea that salvation is just about the releasing of the consequences of sin. My fear is is that in many churches, that's all that we hear. And there is a message to be said, save yourself from the wrath that is to come. But that salvation is not only a salvation from sin's consequence, it is a salvation from sin's continuing presence in our lives. Christ died taking our sin upon himself so that we would die daily to sin. It starts a train reaction of constant death in the believer's life so that the sin that we indulged in yesterday we look at now today by God's grace through His Spirit and it repulses us. It is a rotting corpse and we don't want to go back to it. We're dead to it. The implication then, well, what if we continue to live in sin? And the implication that Peter brings out here, he, he died and took our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin. So if we go back to sin, the idea here is we are turning back on its head what Christ has intended to do through his cross. It is a mockery of the cross of Christ to say that we only want salvation from his wrath, but we want to continue living in that which we have been, that has been killed for us. So we must have daily a personal death to sin, a death that persists throughout the path we walk as pilgrims. Are you killing sin in your life? Are you perpetually seeking to die to sin more and more every day? But not only is this good news death to sin, it is also good news that brings life, a life in Righteousness. Notice the second half of what he says here in, in this phrase, that we might die to sin, but then that's not all of it, that we also would live to what? Righteousness. While death to sin brings us halfway, we need to have righteousness credited to our account. And so that's the great exchange. Christ takes our sin upon himself in his body on the tree. He takes God's wrath. And then we, on the other side of that exchange, what do we receive? God's righteousness, particularly Christ's righteousness. And so that is what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made Christ, him, to be sin who knew no sin, to result in what? Us becoming the righteousness of God. Right? This, is, this is basic 101 gospel stuff. Right? We all know this. We love this verse. Amen, people will say. But here's where the rubber meets the road. We, that righteousness that we have in Christ, while it is a judicial declaration that we are innocent and counted righteous in Christ, it needs to affect and show itself in our everyday lives. And how does it do that? We live in righteousness. 
Just as Christ's death has a continuing active effect on our lives so that we daily die to sin, so we have seen in his resurrection from the dead a continuing active effect on our daily lives. We are dead to sin and we are living in Christ. And if you actually turn over one back one page to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again so that we have what type of hope? A living hope. And what is that living hope founded in? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The new resurrection life we have in Christ now allows us to live lives of righteousness. I think particularly in circles that emphasize the depravity of man, we can sometimes go overboard in how we apply that to genuine believers. Now, there is nothing good in our flesh, right? Nothing good in our flesh. The Scriptures are abundantly clear about that. But in Christ, we are now transformed. And so we can produce righteousness by His grace. That's what Peter is saying. Live to righteousness. Have a life that is transformed by the grace of God so that we positively live out righteousness in our lives. We're not just declared righteous. We are to live righteously, to act righteously, to do righteousness. We've been made alive so that that life would bring us to righteous action. Now see, we can't, it, both are necessary. They're both two sides of the same coin. We die to sin. And that is, it is wonderful that we cease and continue to progress in ceasing to sin. But that is not all that Christ has come to do. He's also come so that our lives would reflect His and we would live in righteousness. Our call is to live righteous lives. Now, it's important that we keep the order in place here. I do not live a righteous life in order to receive God's sacrifice in Christ counted to my, my account. All right? That would be flipping it so that I live in righteousness so that Christ would die for me and then I would somehow be counted worthy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for us who were sinners who didn't deserve it. But now there's a new life produced through His resurrection that calls us to live a life that acts righteously. And this is what Paul clearly concludes in Romans 6, 13. All right, he's talking about we're dead to sin, we're alive to Christ. So now, what does that mean on a daily basis? Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, all right? That's the death to sin. But present yourself to God as those who have been what? Brought from death to life. And now our members, which were before instruments for unrighteousness, what are they now instruments for? For righteousness. To live out the righteousness of Christ within us. This is what it means to walk the pilgrim pathway. 
turning from the sin that the world that is dead in sin continues to revel in and living a life that is more and more in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ because it is His righteousness at work in us. As Jesus Himself said in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, verily, verily, when he says those words, he is speaking that which is absolutely true. What is he saying? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal what? Life. Now, we often think about that as being taken from this world and living on streets of gold wings on our backs and, and harps in our hands, or to be technical liars in our hands, all right? That's not the eternal state for the believer. In fact, it's not what eternal life is at all. You know what eternal life is? Knowledge of the Father. Living like Him. Living in such a way that we are acceptable to Him. We could not do that before our salvation, but now we can by God's grace. And so we don't come into judgment, but we are passed from what? Death to life. That's the Christian life. It is a life of living to Christ. And so the sanctification of the righteous is good news for pilgrims. Not just the satisfaction of justice, but also Peter encourages us that we are now dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Praise the Lord. We walk across this world with those realities working by God's Spirit in our lives. So as pilgrims, we find in our death to sin and our new lives that we can, be, that we can live under righteousness. But this is a perilous call. Peter is going to, later on in chapter 3 and chapter 4, and pretty much throughout the rest of, the, of this book, he's going to talk about the path of suffering that we're going to face. The Christian life is hard. We live in a world that is still dead to sin and is, has great animosity towards us as God's people. And again, we can become so focused on that suffering and that turmoil that that overshadows the good news that Peter's pointing us to. And it is good news that, sa that justice has been satisfied. It is good news that we're being sanctified. But finally, Peter points us to a wonderful reality that the Savior's care is good news for pilgrims. Look with me at the end of verse 24 and verse 25. By His wounds. You have been what? Healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Three things here briefly I'd like us to discuss. And the first is that there is good news in Christ's healing. As we had seen several weeks ago throughout this passage, Peter is drawing upon Isaiah 53, the great suffering servant psalm. And there he, he is 
stitching together all these glorious things of how Christ's suffering brings us salvation. And he returns there now as he comes to the end of this section. He turns back to Isaiah 53 and he quotes probably one of the most well-known passages in that, pa in that passage. That it is through the wounds of Christ that we are healed. It's interesting here, the, the Greek term that Peter uses here is the same one used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It means to restore to a state of health after a malady. Restoration, I think, is particularly the important aspect here that Peter is trying to get across. Before Christ, we were cursed. We languished under sin. We were, we were wounded by it. And everything we did was tainted by sin. Everything. Apart from Christ, all that we did was sin. Scripture tells us that anything that is done without faith is sin. And so before our faith in Christ, the, even the good things we could do, even the righteousness that we produced was sin. It was a filthy rag before our Father. Every action indeed was flavored by sin. It was a cancer that spread throughout every part of our body, our soul, our affections, our desires, our will and determinations, all of them were sick because of sin. But Christ's redemption brings healing. His wounds do not only provide relief or salvation from the wrath of God. They do not only kill sin for us and then put us on a path through His resurrection to new life. They also work to heal us from the malady of sin that, dealt, that, de that dwells so deeply within us. Where before the curse of death from sin tainted all that we did, this, that stain is cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. We are healed. What's interesting is the tense of the verb that's used here. By his wounds, you have been healed. It is a tense that just means a past action that's done. When Jesus Christ said, Te telestai, it is finished, it is done. We are healed from sin. And so this is important. Why is this good news? Because the reality of the redemption of Christ has set us in a place where our condition is now not one of sin, but one of righteousness in Him. So that now we can live that righteous life. Only the sacrifice of Christ can bring this healing. Again, this is where it's important that we don't flip the order. We don't do righteous deeds to heal ourselves. You know, if, if you take that which is diseased, and use it to try to heal a disease, is it going to heal the disease? Actually, it's just going to make the disease spread even more. So we need cleansing. We need healing. And Jesus Christ provides that. We are healed in Christ. Now, here's the reality. All right, Anybody here not sin this week? Raise your hands. Raise your hands if, you've never, if you didn't sin this week. Anybody? Anybody? 
Come on, we're Christians here. We're a Bible Baptist. We're Baptists. We don't sin, right? No, no one's hands are bowed. The reality is, is that the malady, the sickness of sin is still within us. And we know the struggle that we face with sin. But there's a wonderful hope that we as pilgrims, as we walk the pilgrim pathway, as we stumble and fall into sin, that we can find always healing in the wings of Jesus. That the malady of sin is fully cleansed in his work. As Malachi says, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, will rise with what? Healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You say, well, that's a weird thing to put there. Well, if you think about a, an ill calf, it's laying in the barn, moaning. It's perhaps struggling to stand up. It's suffering. But when that calf is healed, when it has the opportunity to go out, it bursts with new life out of the stall and lives that life fully. And that is what Christ does for us. We're able to burst from his healing into a life changed life, a healed life. So there's the good news of Christ's healing. And then secondly, there is the good news of Christ's shepherding. As we have been healed, Peter then pulls back and says, you were straying like sheep. Now, sin's sickness is seen in its greatest symptom, and that is self-centeredness. Peter is rewording what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 again here in verse 25 at the very beginning. You were straying like sheep. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone, what? Astray. We've turned everyone. Now here's the thing. What does it mean to go astray? Does it mean that we just sort of, you know, oh, accidentally get off the wrong path? No. Sheep, particularly spiritual sheep, go astray when they go after whose way? Their own way. We've turned every one of us to our own way. Sin has at its root the exaltation of self above everything else. Selfishness is the primary symptom of, a, of the sickness of sin. You know, we've been going through off and on bouts with COVID. And remember, what was the one primary symptom when you had COVID? You would lose your what? Taste and smell. When I had COVID, I knew I had it because I couldn't taste what I was eating. And if you've ever eaten chicken without taste or smell, it is awful. It's a bunch of texture. So what's the first clear indication of sin? Selfishness. Going my own way. And don't we live in a sin-sick world? We can see all around us, written on the headlines, the newspapers, 
the news programs, people following their own desires, their own selfish ways, focusing and centering their lives on their goals to the exclusion of anything else. And that's, that was us apart from Christ. We were going our own way. But there is good news. And that is that as pilgrims, we who were straying like sheep, where have we now gone? We've returned to who? The shepherd and overseer of our souls. What's a pilgrim? A pilgrim is someone who follows the good shepherd, who doesn't go his own way, but follows Christ's leading in everything. There is eternal hope given to those who hear the voice of the shepherd, that the shepherd knows. And then what happens as we hear the voice of the shepherd and the shepherd knows us, what do we do? We Follow him. And those who hear his voice and that the shepherd knows and that follows him, what does he give? Eternal life. We will never perish. And no one is able to snatch us out of our good shepherd's hand. I would encourage you this afternoon, take some time. It'll only take you about 10, 15 minutes, if that. Read John 10. That is the passage where we see the good shepherd described. And it is a passage of hope and encouragement and uplifting truth for us as we walk the pilgrim pathway. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my what? Shepherd. And if the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through a valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear what? evil. Why? You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup overflows. And so if I'm following the good shepherd, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord, who is my shepherd, how long? Forever. Forever. That's good news for pilgrims, isn't it? Christ is our shepherd. And then finally, we see the good news of Christ's overseeing. We have now returned. We were strained like sheep. By God's grace, we've returned to the shepherd and, he says here, the overseer of our souls. Christ is not just the good shepherd. He is also our great overseer. He is our great bishop, the 
term here is episkopos. It refers to someone who takes careful oversight. In fact, the term itself implies that there is great care taken in that oversight. And then there is a strong hint to a level of protection or safeguarding. No, here's the reality about the pilgrim pathway that we're called to walk. It's not safe from a worldly perspective. Jesus tells us that we have to part with everything to follow him. We are going to place ourselves in positions of vulnerability as shepherds. We're going to make decisions that may affect us financially, that may affect our relationships with others. And from a human perspective, that's not safe. We need a safe place to go. And Jesus is the one who has overseen our lives. Christ never ceases to be the overseer of our souls. He pays great attention and care to those who walk the path of a pilgrim. This is good news. No matter what you're facing, no matter what difficulty you might be going through right now, I don't know what everyone's facing in here today. If you're watching online, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what your next week might bring. But if you've lived on this world for any amount of time, you've found that there's been difficulty, suffering, Where do we find hope? I praise God that that hope is not in my own oversight of my life. Because if it was up to me to walk the pilgrim pathway, and it was up to me to keep myself safe, I'm not feeling very confident about things. But I don't oversee my life as a pilgrim. Jesus does. He is the great overseer of our path. He will not lose any pilgrim. The path of a pilgrim may be arduous. It may be filled with peril. But our good shepherd and great overseer is guarding our souls as we walk the pilgrim way. And this is good news. Our Savior cares for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful hope we have in Christ our Savior. We thank you for the great care that he gives to us as we walk this pilgrim journey. Father, we thank you that we have been saved so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Father, work that in our lives. May we think and consider and reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus. May we turn away from sin daily and turn to live righteous lives daily. And Father, as we encounter the difficulties of this life, as we encounter suffering, as we encounter peril, Lord, may we take comfort in your shepherding and oversight of our souls.
Father, thank you for Jesus and the wonderful hope he provides to us as pilgrims. Take your word, apply it to our hearts and lives, change us, transform us, mold us into Christ's image today. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood.